take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. When you uh, look what's going on and happening in our culture, you can't help but ask, what in the world has gone wrong with our society? I mean, everywhere you look, I mean, whether it's crime and violence every day, you got babies who are unwanted or unplanned growing in mother's wombs, and we have a law of the land that just says, you want to take that life? You can And it is so despicable about what is done that we can't even talk about it. And to see it would cause human revulsion. Anything from advertisements to entertainment has a strongly sexualized component. In fact, it would be safe to say that we live in a sexualized culture. Everywhere you go, you cannot escape it. It is everywhere. Uh, How many of you are familiar with the show Good Luck Charlie? Family show? Lots of you? Okay, yeah. Good Luck Charlie. Man, this has got a lot of family appeal. A lot of families watch it. Very kid-friendly. Put out by Disney. It's been a huge win for them. And they've got a lot of folks that watch this show. Good Luck Charlie. On Sunday, January 26th, this year, they did something that no children's show has ever done before. They introduced the first same-sex and openly gay characters on their family show. And uh, it was the first time that's ever happened on a children's network. Disney children's spokesperson uh, said this, quote, this is in their interview with TV Guide, we wanted to be relevant to kids and families around the world and to reflect the themes of diversity and inclusiveness. Never before have sexual ethics been completely confused and contorted. Divorce is rampant, Cohabitation before marriage has become absolutely normal. Uh, New technology has taken pornography to levels absolutely unheard of. In fact, we can't even put our arms and minds around how pervasive pornography is with the introduction of cell phones, iPads, and home computers. And then not only that, the the once inconceivable subject of same-sex union. Like 20 years ago, No way. Never going to happen. In reality, uh, it's now the law in multiple jurisdictions, and it is growing. Now, some folks are actually celebrate some of the things that I've just said. Look, that is great, man. Finally, we've arrived. We're becoming progressive. We're making some pretty serious strides. Other folks are absolutely appalled at the things that uh, you hear about taking place. But if you want to know why these trends are happening in society and what we are to do about them, you want to make sure that your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 1. And as we're making our way through this book, let me just kind of review where we've been, beginning in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God has a personal aversion towards sin, and because he is holy and he is just, he is going to bring a judgment upon sin. And he says his wrath is being revealed. It's actually sourced out of God's love. He loves his creation and humanity to such a degree that he is actually going to bring wrath upon any sin, any deviation that would cause corruption. And so he says, verse 19, There is a reason for this. At the end of verse 18, he said, because men or humanity is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They are pushing down this reality found in verse 19 because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. God has made himself known in his creation. 
Mankind says, I don't think so. I'd rather have God on my own terms. I'll make one up if I need to. But I'm not having a God that I'm going to submit to as an ultimate creator. And so, verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been what? Clearly seen. It's not like vague. It's... Paul says it is absolutely clearly seen when you look at creation, and we talked a lot about this last week, that God is, and he's not dead, and he's alive. In fact, you can learn about his power and something about his nature. Being understood, verse 20, through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Whether you are the heathen in Africa or the heathen in Waco, you are without excuse. Because, verse 21, for even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks. Not interested. Surely like all the blessings and things that you have made and created, but you know what? They will not worship him. They'll not honor him, nor will they give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Your heart is like an idol factory and it will create gods out of creation. Now, You may not be so drawn to worshiping sticks, stones, or little carved figurines or statues, but let me assure you, idolatry is widespread, and you can find it whether you're worshiping your health, pleasure, prestige, sex, education, entertainment, celebrities, success, power, it is out there. And you find your sense of identity, peace, well-being when you've got this. What is it for you? And a lot of folks are like, I got money in the bank. I got someone who loves me. Uh, I've got this going on. I love my entertainment. Whatever it might be, or is it God? Well, men who are not going to have God, they suppress the truth. They will not have it. It says their foolish heart was darkened. And he summarizes it, verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And if you will not have God on his terms, you will have God on terms of your own making. And that's exactly what we look at. When we see religion and the study of religion worldwide, you see a widespread depravity being expressed in all these contortions and distortions of who God is really is. Now, you could safely say this. The trajectory of our lives is determined by our response to God's revealed truth. Where you're going in this life has everything to do with how you're responding to the truth that God has revealed. And we could say this, exchanging the truth of God for a lie leads to experiencing the wrath of God over sin. And if you want to see the wrath of God expressed and what it's going to look like, all you have to do is open up Romans chapter 1 or look at today's newspaper. But look at Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. And this is a judicial term used to handing over a prisoner to the sentence that he has. So God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That word impurity speaks of decaying matter, like matter you'd find in a grave. Here it's being used of sexual immorality. And where does it begin? It begins where? In there, verse 24, their hearts, okay? They're, they had their lust of their hearts to impurity. They're lusting after it. And God gives them over 
and allows them to walk through the doors of their own choice. You could phrase it this way. The punishment of sin is sin. God allows the outworking, because he's allowing his wrath to take place, he, lur- he allows the outworking of sin to be manifested, and it literally unravels you from the inside out. And he says that it starts in their heart, but it gets expressed in their bodies so that their bodies will be dishonored among them. And here he's talking about heterosexual, heterosexual sin, where, whether it be adultery, fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, lewdness, prostitution, harlotry, or just what's very common today is our hookup culture. And in fact, it is so pervasive, sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, that it's become commonplace and just kind of mainstream. We are so used to hearing about it, seeing it. We all know people that are either cheating on their spouses or they're living with the boyfriend or the girlfriend. It is just so mainstream that it's become part of our culture, and it's God revealing his wrath. Now, it's interesting when you look at uh, the study of ancient religions, it's, 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 it becomes appalling because so much of it is tied with sexual immorality. It's true of any culture. The character of the worshipers is going to give you a good indicator of that which is being worshipped. Whatever is their high ideal... Whatever they are worshiping starts to then dictate the morality of those who are worshiping. And when people refuse to honor God, they begin to dishonor themselves. And that's what he's saying here in verse 24. So that their bodies will be dishonored among them. They literally put their bodies through that which is absolutely dishonoring. Why? Verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You and I, you know what? We're designed for worship. We're designed to know the one who made us. We're designed for God. But if you'll not have him, then of course you're not going to give thanks. Of course you're not going to honor and you will not worship. You'll buy a lie and you'll suppress the truth and you experience the consequences of that and that's exactly what's happening. God's wrath is revealed even in one's own body. And you see that with heterosexual sin. Well, let me also tell you, it also shows up in homosexuality. And look at verse 26. Here again, you see that same phrase. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, or could be translated against nature. Homosexuality is, is not ever experienced in the animal kingdom, okay? It is unique to humanity who suppresses the truth about God. And there is a natural way of a man and a woman coming together, and they act in homosexuality. It is unnatural, and that's what he's saying here. It is, it is completely unnatural, and that word function there is the... Uh, the Greek term used for sexual intercourse. And they're saying they give themselves over to degrading passions. And he starts off with women. Now, pretty interesting about women. Women, it seems in most cultures, are the last to be affected by moral collapse. Seems like if you look at women in the study of history, they're the ones that generally still hold the moral high ground. They're the last to give in and to go. 
And what Paul is saying, he is emphasizing depravity gets so bad that it's actually even the women, they give in. And here he's talking about lesbianism. And it's not only women, but you need to know whatever seeds you're sowing in your life, they're going to be reaped. Look at verse 27. And in the same way also, men abandoned the natural function of the woman, and they burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their heir. They are, here he's talking about men who are literally consumed in their passion for one another, and they receive in their own persons. It literally starts unraveling you and tearing you up from the inside out. If you've talked with people that are either involved in homosexuality or know people that are, they talk about the great shame. You literally go through an identity crisis. It's because God has handed you over because that was your choice. That's what you wanted. You wanted sexual freedom and sexual expression, but it actually led to slavery. And you want more and more of it. Now, in the culture in which Paul is writing, if you take a step back here, you look at the Greek culture, uh, homosexuality was practiced. Um, it was tolerated. Oftentimes it was approved, especially men. Oftentimes men in the Greek culture were bisexual. And now the, the Jewish culture, they were completely opposed to homosexuality. But for the, the Greeks, not only did they prove, but they actually would groom boys in this, in this way, okay? And it is, it's sick, all right? It's not, you, you, don't, you can't actually even talk about the sort of things that they did. Because it's revolting, but it's what they did. But it wasn't just the Greek culture. Phoenicians, Egyptians also practiced homosexuality. Um, when you get to the Romans, a lot of the upper echelon of Rome, you had money. This was a practice, and it was often men with boys, boys that were actually groomed for these purposes. But then the Roman philosophers, on the other hand, if you look at kind of the consensus of what they write, they're actually disgusted by the practice, and they write that it's unnatural and, and it shouldn't be. But to, for you to understand how pervasive this was and how accepted it was, 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors practiced homosexuality. That's how pervasive it was. And it is not something that's just like starting to happen in our culture. Like, what in the world's going on? We're having a sexual revolution in our own culture. It's been going on for a long time. And that's why we need to talk about it. I'm, I'm coming to you as a friend and as a pastor. I'm thinking about people in our church that know of others that are struggling with this, like your own kids. I'm talking about, I want to talk with students showing up at high schools or college campuses, and they're, they're being confronted with a completely different agenda and clubs that are about homosexuality and professors that are going to be in your face, and are going to tear you apart, and they are good at it. We need to discuss these things, and what, what is going on? Now, when we talk about uh, the whole idea of homosexuality, where do you begin? Most people begin with the idea that, oh, man, God is against it, and there are some prohibitions in the Bible. I'm, I'm sure of it. I don't know where they are, but I'm sure that there is in the Bible. I've heard it somewhere that God says that's wrong and that's sinful. But that's actually not where we begin. No, if we need to begin with the beginning. We need to begin with creation. If we're going to talk biblically about the subject of homosexuality, we've got to begin with Genesis. And so if you're going to have a right view about sexuality, you need to have a right view 
about God. And if you have the wrong view about God, you're going to get in trouble real quick. So let's just talk about God's original design. So if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God creates humanity, people, in his own image. That means that they are his representatives, and to a degree, they reflect the character and the nature of God. Now, it is a limited degree, but we are unique. We are not like, we're just another animal in the food chain. No, we are absolutely unique to his creation. We are created in the image of God. That means that every single person has dignity because they're created in the image of God, and they are to be treated as such. And then Genesis chapter 2, which kind of gives more detail of what you find in Genesis 1.27, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, Genesis 2.18. And God does. He actually shows how there is to be a complement, male and female, made in the image of God. He takes from the rib of man and he fashions woman, man, woman. And they naturally come together and you have the establishment of the marriage institution a man and a woman coming together. They are meant to complement one another. They are meant to come together. That's what you see established here. In fact, when you look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God is establishing all that is good, and he calls it good and very good. Who created marriage? God did. Who created sex? God did. And it's not that we like, oh, This is just wonderful, and it's just for us to enjoy. Actually, God gives us things to enjoy so that we'll actually be led to worship him. Don't terminate your enjoyment on just the activity or whatever sort of blessing that God has given, whether it be food or whatever. It is actually meant to design to lead you to worship and thanksgiving. That's what it's designed for. And so when you find uh, God creating man and woman coming together, It's not only for procreation, it's also for the intimate celebration of love within the confines of marriage. That's what sexual expression is for. However, man enters into treason. When Adam and Eve disobey God, they disregard him. When they buy the lie of Satan, you could be like God. That sounds pretty good. You'd have everything... And they, they enter into sin. They plunge humanity into sin and depravity. And so God, in his grace, actually gives the law to show us how to live. And he gave it to his people and said, this is how we're to live, and you are to be an example. In fact, you are to be a witness to the nations. I am going to make you a blessing to the world. That is the promise that God gives to Abraham. And he actually addresses issues regarding sexuality. He says what is good, but he also has this law which points the way to show what certain things are prohibited. So, for instance, remember the Ten Commandments? Remember with that? You shall not commit adultery. Establishes that right up front, okay? But he also addresses issues like prostitution, incest, bestiality, and he's saying this is absolutely wrong. This is not how you're designed. This is not life as you're intended. You're made in the image of God. But he also addresses homosexuality. And he does so with very strong terms, like Leviticus 18.22. He says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, okay? It is, that word abomination has the idea that it is detestable in the sight of God. 
He actually is, has a revulsion against it, okay? And there's others, like Leviticus 20, 13. God expressly states that homosexuality is contrary to his will, that we're not to engage into it, okay? Now, yet it happens, and it's been practiced for a long time. This isn't just something new that's kind of hitting here. There are some environmental factors that we know lead to homosexuality in its practice. Let me give you the two most significant ones. One is the physical or emotional absence of a caring father during childhood days. When you look at people that have made the choice for homosexuality, that is oftentimes a factor that shows up. Another, though, is that there is a sexual abuse that happens sometimes, sometime in, during childhood or adolescence. That happens, that can set someone up for choices down the road where they move into homosexuality. Now, there are objections to this. this everything that Paul's writing here, Romans chapter 1, people say, wait a second, no, 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 no. There, and I'm, let me give you the one that's gaining the most cultural popularity. And that is that, well, actually what Paul is addressing is exploitive version of homosexual behavior, like ritual prostitution or pedophilia or promiscuity. And that's what, what Paul is addressing is that sort of thing. He's not down on homosexuality. He knows that that's all good and fine. And so they make the argument that that's what's taking place. But is that what the text says? You and I need to be pretty good at understanding our Bible. And let me tell you, one of the best ways of doing that is always take things in context. What does the passage say? And he's talking about what? Burning and passion one another, women and with women, men with men. This is reciprocity. This isn't rape. That's not what he's talking about. Here he's talking about their burning and their passions for one another. Let me give you another one that where people want to argue against uh, the position that is clear in scriptures. They're going to take Sodom and Gomorrah, and they go, you know, everybody's familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, but we've had it wrong all these years. Okay, God's, God's not down on homosexuality. What he's down on is that there was a coercive homosexual practice. And, you know, those guys, the old, young and the old, they wanted those other two guys, and, and that's what God was down on. That's why he brought judgment. And if you read the text, though, that's not what's the issue. In fact, it seems that homosexuality had become rather widespread in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God does bring judgment. And if you want God's uh, own commentary on the event, you look at the book of Jude, that little book, verse 7, he says this when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, that those in, they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. They went after it. It was absolutely wrong, and God brings judgment. Here's one. I'm sure a lot of you have heard this. Maybe in college, on the news. It's been predetermined that you're gay. There is a gay gene, okay? That someone can actually be born to be a homosexual. A homosexual. Like the idea that biology determines destiny. Heard that? I'm sure you have. But you need to know this. There is no scientific or DNA test that will tell us if a person is homosexual, bisexual, or even heterosexual for that matter. And since nobody is born gay, it is clear that sexual orientation at its core is a choice. It's a matter of how one defines themselves. It's not a matter of biology or genes. And there, let me give you something that's especially significant that you need to know about this. There are studies that are done on identical twins. 
and they have found some identical twins where one of them actually makes the choice to become homosexual and have a homosexual lifestyle, and the other doesn't. But they both have the exact same DNA. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have certain tendencies or there is a propensity to whether being effeminate or a propensity to be homosexual, just like there are propensities to be depressed. But you need to understand that it is a choice. No one is born a homosexual, just like no one is born a thief or a murderer. These are decisions and choices that are made. And it's like one lady in our church told me, her son is is a practicing homosexual. He's just running from God. Homosexuality is a reflection of the brokenness, broken of sinfulness, broken sinfulness in our humanity. But not only does rejecting God lead to his wrath being actually revealed in our bodies, it also is revealed in our minds. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, here's our phrase again, third time, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And now he's going to talk on all the different ways that this affects our mind and our thinking when you'll not have God and no one is going to come away unscathed. Look what he says. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, has the idea of lying, malice, a willingness to see someone suffer and even desiring that. That they are, we better skip that one next in verse 29. I don't want anybody to get nervous here on me. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Look at that at the end of verse 30. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, un. Merciful. He's just kind of going on. These are expressions of minds that have been given over, that God gave them over. You didn't want him. And this is what starts to get expressed. Not only is it in your bodies, but it starts, it takes place in your mind. And you actually start thinking this way and you start acting this way. And look at verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, for the wages of sin is death, you know that there is a spiritual death that takes place because of sin. They not only do the same, but also give what? Hearty approval to those who practice them. It's not only that you practice it, but there is kind of like, this is a consensus of the culture. This is good. It's esteemed in Hollywood. It's made into movies. It becomes what we call entertainment. And furthermore, even at a social circle, we're just like, that's great, man. You're doing that. That's fine. No big deal. You want to act that way? In fact, that's great. I'm really glad you feel comfortable enough to be able to come out and start saying these things and living this way openly and publicly. And it becomes a cultural affirmation, but you need to know that God is bringing judgment. Now, there's a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He lived back in England about 100 years ago. And uh, he was a very famous theologian philosopher. And he was reading a series of articles uh, entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And so Chesterton decided that he would write a letter to the editor, a very short one. And this is what he wrote. Dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That's it. But that is it, isn't it? What's wrong with the world? I am. 
There's something that is going on in my heart that wants to suppress God and seek my sense of identity and purpose and life and happiness and joy and well-being and security and anything or anyone but God. And so what happens is we just invent gods of our own. Let me ask you, do you think that the U.S. is going to face the wrath of God? What do you think? You think, you think we will? Hmm. I'm going to say no. We're, we're not going to. We are experiencing the wrath of God. He's, he's handed it over. We are a people that is suppressing truth. And we've had it good if you look at our heritage. And we said, we don't want it. We've gotten past that. And we're going at full fashion. I know that right now there's things that are going on in our culture and you're uncomfortable with that. And it doesn't make you happy. But I think we're just getting started. Get ready. Now, does the Bible have a solution to this? I mean, look what's going on in our own culture. I mean, whether it be a celebration of abortion, sodomy, materialism, violence, uh, we totally done away with anything God's wisdom. Certainly don't want anybody praying. We don't certainly want Ten Commandments posted up. That might cause people to think. We got the wisdom of atheism and evolution, and we're all going for it. Does God have a solution, though? Does the Bible have a solution regarding sin, including sexual sin? Absolutely. There is great hope for humanity, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ. In fact, that is why he came. Promised and delivered. Let me give you a text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. These ought to be some pretty important verses to you. You better be real familiar with them because it is in trusting in Christ and his forgiveness and the imputation of his righteousness and the power that he gives to change lives. And if you want to see what that looks like, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, those who have sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you are in any one of those categories, and this is not meant to be an exhaustive list, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I'm sorry you were out. Except if you trust and put your faith in Christ. Like Paul says, the gospel of God. If you put your faith in him, you can experience transformation. In fact, that's exactly what happened in Corinth. Because look at the very next verse. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. God literally cleanses you. He cleanses you from the inside, and he washes your body with pure water. He actually gives you redemption. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you life. He is bringing about a restoration that you experience life as it was intended, intended for the glory of God and to know him and his goodness. And he does so when you turn from sin and trust in Christ. Is there hope for a lost humanity? Absolutely. You know where that hope is found? It's found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't struggle with like a homosexual desire, or, it, or for that matter, uh, immorality of any state. So there's times where you're going to have a pretty strong sense for evil. That's just part of being human. But that doesn't mean that you have to fall into it. In fact, those of us who know Christ, not only does he actually unite us with him, 
but he actually gives us the power of his presence. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that there is always a way of escape. You don't have to succumb. And so if I were you, and this is what I tell folks when we're dealing with temptation, and this is what I try to practice in my life, I don't want to wage war against anything that's kind of leering me into sin. And it's out there. I face it just like you do. At the same time, I want to feed anything that fuels my desire for Christ. I want to have friends that are serious about God. I want to be involved in a church that loves Christ. I want to be listening to Christian music. I want to be reading the scriptures. I want to pray. I want to do anything to fuel my passion for Jesus Christ because that's where my strength and my life is found. And God will. He will give you the ability, and you need to know this. It doesn't matter what your sexual past is. And it's probably a good thing we just don't know about each other's sexual past, right? You can experience wholeness, healing, and hope. You do not have to be hamstrung by your past when you're focusing and united with Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to haunt your heart. And the rest of your life can be experiencing the joy of knowing Christ. Like Paul says, just forgetting what lies behind and looking forward, looking to him. That's what we want to do. And God, by his grace, he makes that possible. I read some pretty interesting stuff preparing for this message. I came across an author, younger guy by the name of Wesley Hill, and he writes about his experiences growing up. He writes, uh, he grew up in a Christian home. Uh, he'd been taught the biblical views on sexuality, and yet Hill writes, quote, confusingly, I find myself just when all my friends were beginning to notice girls and becoming interested in dating, I noticed having longings to be in that kind of relationship with a member of my own sex. And so, After receiving wisdom and loving guidance from Christian mentors, listen to what he writes. Quote, As I discovered more about Christianity's historic teaching, I I found myself convinced of the position which the church has held with almost total unanimity throughout the ages, that although many people find themselves, through no fault of their own, to have sexual desires for members of their own sex, this is not something to be affirmed and celebrated, but is, rather, a sign that we are broken, in need of redemption and recreation. Gay people are not uniquely broken. That's a position we share with every other human who has ever lived or will live. But we are, nonetheless, broken. And following Jesus means turning our backs on a life of sexual sin, just as it does for every other Christian. And then he gives this piece of advice to those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Quote, if you're someone living with homosexual feelings, Jesus' message to you is not primarily a no to your deepest hunger. I do believe that discipleship to him entails giving up gay sex and gay relationships, and that may be more painful than you can imagine right now. But ultimately, Jesus is offering you the kingdom. He is offering you eternal life. He's offering you himself in the gospel. Sacrificing your sexual freedom may seem like a high price to pay, and it is a high price to pay, but he promises you a joy so stunningly great that if you felt the full weight of it now, you would literally come undone. So how are we to respond? How do we respond to our non-Christian friends? who have chosen to live life outside of God's, God's design, and they are acting in ways that the Bible calls sinful. Now, every one of us knows people like this. We all know people that are cheating on their wife or their husband. 
They're just living together. They're involved in all sorts of sexual sin. We know people that are homosexual. Some of them are getting pretty forward with that. How are we supposed to respond? Let me tell you, this is what we need to do. We need to be, first of all, loving God and his people well. We need to have a a love for God that actually starts shining through our life, where God is not just an option, but God is great in our life, and we love him, and we need to learn how to love other people, as did our Savior. He went to the outcasts, and he loved them. Why do we love people? Because they are created in the image of God. And we who have been transformed by Christ, God is seeking to bring us to a place where we are loving people as God does, and we see them as they are. Yeah, some of that sin is going to be, it's going to be hard to handle. And it's no way are we like, well, that's fine, another option for you. We are concerned about their heart. We do want to love them. People are created in God's image, that means they have inherent dignity. Not only to be loving God and loving people well, but we need to be living out the truth of God's word. We need to model a holy, healthy, happy life in Christ. Let people see the real thing. I think that's what's missing. Christians are not truly finding their joy in Christ, and so we're buying off into the other idols out there. Let people see the real thing. Let's honor God and his word and do not succumb to the pressure to conform. And there is a lot of pressure. Okay, and we Christians are feeling like, ah, okay, I'll just, whatever, whatever. I'm gonna, that's what I'm gonna go with it. And then, you know, and Christians in America, think of it, man. We got great privilege. We can speak, we can love, we can act, we can vote. We have the privilege and the opportunity of doing that. You and I can be an influence in our culture. We don't have to roll over and play dead because, well, you know, someone might take this the wrong way if I actually hold a position that's biblical, or. Or there's pressure on you to conform and keep your mouth shut. You do not have to roll over and play dead. In fact, we've got the answer. We have Jesus Christ. Kevin DeYoung uh, addresses the issue, how should the church, speaking of the people of God, speak to our culture about homosexuality? And he says, you know, because there's a lot of different subgroups, there's probably different approaches to it. So he says, quote, if we are speaking to cultural elites who despise us and our beliefs, we want to be bold and courageous. If we're speaking to strugglers who fight against same-sex attraction, We want to be patient and sympathetic. If we're speaking to sufferers who have been mistreated by the church, we want to be apologetic and humble. If we're speaking to shaky Christians who seem ready to compromise the faith for society's approval, we want to be persuasive and persistent. If we're speaking to liberal Christians who have deviated from the truth once delivered to the saints, we want to be serious and oratory. That has the idea of urging and exhorting. If we are speaking to gays and lesbians, who live as the scriptures would not have them live, we want to be winsome and straightforward. And if we're speaking to belligerent Christians who hate or fear homosexuals, we want to be upset and disappointed. How are we to go about this? Well, we need to be loving God and people will. We need to be living out the truth of God's word. And we need to be letting the gospel be known. Our life goal isn't to get people to stop sinning or to embrace traditional morality. That's not our goal. We're after that people know the love of God that is found in Christ. We are his ambassadors and his emissaries. Chicken, though we may be, or perhaps bold, this God has chosen that he's going to use his people to bring the gospel, and you've got it. You can't afford to be silent. We've got to learn how to engage. And it's difficult. I'll tell you, a lot of you have heard my testimony. I came to Christ at the University of Oregon, and 
University of Oregon, man, is highly liberal. Things that are, we're just starting to see in our culture was super mainstream. The largest funded group on campus was Gay and Lesbian Alliance. And they were out there. They were always in the newspaper. They had a lot of money. They could do whatever they wanted. And they were, they man, always were pushing the limits. After I became a Christian, I became very interested in seeing anybody come to Christ because my life has been revolutionized by the gospel and knowing him. And so one of the things we do, I was part of the student group called Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. We actually, in the student union, we'd uh, get this TV and a VCR, and we'd show the Jesus film. And if people would always come, we'd kind of hang out there, and we'd just hung out there, and people would come. We'd try to talk with them and just try to initiate conversations about Christ. Inevitably, it would come to the scene of Jesus beating in his crucifixion. And that always drew a crowd. People would always stop and watch it. It's pretty riveting. Well, on one occasion, we're doing this, and, and uh, the guy, Tim, I'll not give his last name, he, uh, he's the head of Gala. He and his friend and a few buddies show up, and they're watching it toward the end. Well, I'm thinking, this is real good. And they got into it. Like, they started cheering for the Romans when they were beating Jesus. Yeah! Hit him another time! And I'll tell you, that evoked some feelings, and they weren't all positive, you know what I'm saying? And they, and they were cheering when they're crucifying Jesus, you know, and people were like standing back like, what in the world? And I'm, I remember my first discipler, his name Doug Gardner, pulled me aside, and he told me something to the effect that, listen, before we know Christ, our hearts are darkened, and we simply don't see. Well, once I became a student leader with Campus Crusade, uh, we ran something called Jesus Week. And a whole week, we just wanted to make Jesus known and famous on campus. And we ended it with this big concert with Steve Camp. And we'd invite everybody, including the new head of Gala. Uh, we'd see this guy running around. He, they're pretty obvious. They always like to be in your face. He'd show up at the weight room and stuff. I, I knew him. And I, I invited him. I said, man, we got this thing called Jesus Week. We got this concert. I really want you to come. You can bring anybody you want. And I knew what that meant. I said, listen, we want you to come. And you're like, no, you know, I'm not into that. You know that and blah, blah, you know, whatever. But you know what? The night of the concert, that Friday night, guess what? He came, and he came with his friend, and I had told him, if you come, I will make sure that you get backstage and you can meet this guy. So I went and talked with him and his friend, and after the concert, we did just that, and he got to talk and interface with Steve Camp for a little bit. He heard the message, and I don't know if any changes took place, but I do know that seeds were planted, and I know this, that Jesus Christ changes lives, and we need to believe it to a place and a point that we're really willing to actually go out and engage people with it. Some of you are familiar with this woman by the name of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Um, she, uh, at the time, age 36, was recently tenured professor at the Center of Women's Study at Syracuse University. Rosaria and her lesbian partner were also members of the Unitarian Universalist Church, where Rosaria was the coordinator of what was called the Welcoming Committee, and that was the gay and lesbian advocacy group at their church. So she's in pretty deep. And she writes, you know, that up to this point in her life, she only, she said, quote, the only Christians she knew were intellectually impaired. They were the kind of people who sent me hate mail or people who carried signs at gay pride marches that read, God hates fags. But her negative image of Christians radically changed when there was a guy by the name of Ken, he's a pastor, and his wife took an interest and just tried to engage this woman. And it's just a period of years, but she writes this. Before... I ever stepped foot in a church. I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd and an on and off studying scripture and my heart. Ken knew at the time that I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. And I want you to know that this lady 
she broke off her committed partnership. She became a Christian. In fact, she has a Christian ministry today. How does that get started? It gets started with the gospel and people that believe it and will engage. You need to know this. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie leads to experiencing the wrath of God over sin, but we've got the gospel of grace, and that empowers us to experience and to express the joy of knowing Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. And God, this particular passage, it addresses issues we're facing right now in our culture. In fact, right now, there may be someone here who's deeply lost, experiencing the implications of your wrath against sin. And right now, would they just pray with me, God, I, I hate sin and I hate what's going on. I, I turn from myself, my waywardness, and I trust your son Jesus as my Savior. Fill me and lead me. And for all of us, Lord, would our lives reflect the glory of your goodness. Would you give us boldness and grace? May we speak the truth and love for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.